This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Scholarly Communication, the podcast about how knowledge gets known. I'm Avi Stamen, co-host of the Scholarly Communication podcast. When I'm not podcasting, I dedicate my time to my family, mountain biking, and running my company, Academic Language Experts. Academic Language Experts is an author services company dedicated to helping scholars elevate their manuscripts prior to publication as well as supporting grant proposals to receive research funding. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by Irene Van Russum, Publication Director at Amsterdam University Press. Irene studied English language and literature at the University of Amsterdam and has a Doctor of Philosophy in Medieval Studies from the University of York. Before joining Amsterdam University Press, she worked for almost 19 years at Brill, where she managed lists on medieval studies, classical studies, and languages and linguistics as an acquisitions editor. She's currently the publishing director for AUP's academic program for books, journals, and reference works. Um, Irene, thank you so much for taking the time to join me today. It's a pleasure having you. Well, it's very nice to be invited. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, more than welcome. Um, so I, I, I guess um, we just to start off here, I'm really curious to hear from you. It sounds like you've been in publishing for quite quite a long time. But can you remember back to a specific point in time Uh, a time of your life or even a specific um, story or incident where you realized, you know what, academic publishing is something that I want to do, not just now, but, but, but for my career. Well, I studied English literature and of course, like there's not great many career paths open, at least not in the Netherlands. You can become a teacher or you can try to get into publishing. Uh, And I had a very romantic view of wanting to go into uh, literature (laughs) Uh, but there were no jobs, and so I decided to pursue a PhD in medieval studies, which uh, uh, I started doing during my English degree. And when doing a doctorate, I realized that academia itself was not for me, but I really enjoyed speaking with publishers when I attended conferences. And uh, it, I thought it might be the ideal way of having uh of keeping in touch with academia while also be what I would like to call the real world, um, be in business. Um, and 
uh, but still enjoy all the things that I liked about uh, academia, which is meeting people, talking about research uh, with scholars. And, uh, and, and I like scholars. They're very passionate about what they do. So this is what has kept me, kept me going, I guess. Yeah, it's really interesting. I find that when I speak to people in academic publishing, they seem to have, you know, two sides to them. There's the side that really loves the academic research, but then, uh, and many of them, you know, come from the world of research. Um, But then I think many of them found that there was something that was missing or that wasn't like, you know, they couldn't, um, they they weren't able to achieve in research that they are able to find fulfillment in in publishing. And so it's interesting. I don't yet know exactly what that is, uh, you know, like what it is. And maybe for each person, it's different, right, in terms of what's missing. Um, but it, it is interesting because I, I, I guess I would say that I'm similar, right? I love academic research, but I don't think I could sit and be a researcher all day. No, and it's it's lovely to be really focused on a, on a different, sub, on a certain subject that, uh, that you like exploring. But you really have to also like teaching. Um, you have to like, doing the research for a long period uh, but also it's it's not easy to get a job in academia that is going to last your your lifetime um, it wasn't easy to get into publishing but I, I knew I wanted to do it so I was quite focused on, on landing my first job and it worked nice and and yeah. so I want to fast forward now to your current position um, as uh, editorial direct, as publication director, excuse me, at Amsterdam University Press. So maybe you could tell us a little bit about kind of what a publishing director does. What's um, what 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 your day is uh, looks like? I know I'm sure it, it changes, um, <laughs> you know. But also maybe something that that might surprise our listeners or might be interesting to them about your position. Okay, well, Amsterdam University Press is very well. It's a smaller press, let's put it like that. We're not tiny. There's about 20 people on staff. Uh, and we have we work with commissioning editors who are freelance and uh, in the US and England and here in the Netherlands. So, so we're a small staff. And that means that everybody has a lot of different types of jobs to be done. So my job is not only trying to get a strategy planned out, um, and working with the commissioning editors in uh, uh, exploring ideas and new avenues and helping them out with their acquisitions efforts. Uh, but there's there's lots of other things. I also run the, um, uh, the journals program, which is mostly Dutch language journals and some English. But that means I'm also the system manager for our journals platform. And I, I co-man or woman the, uh, the inbox for the support box. So I will help people who have technical difficulties. And, uh, uh, so this, it's, it's very varied. Um, there's always lots of emails. There's lots of questions to be answered. Um, but I also still enjoy doing some commissioning um, and, and speaking with uh, editorial boards about possibilities of moving their journals to AAP, that sort of thing. Yeah, it's really it's it's really interesting to me. In 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 you just mentioned, and I and I've heard from another uh, few folks, who, which I did not realize is that you know as you move up, um, you know, and and become more you know, let's say senior in the publishing industry, you still kind of keep your hands in the, you know, in, in doing some commissioning and, 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 and like you said, answering support queries, uh, and that may be different in different publishers, but 
I think there's something really nice about not forgetting kind of the the, the work, the day-to-day work that happens and probably allows you to be a better manager because you're, you know exactly what the challenges that your staff are facing or, you know, and, and, and what they're up against. So you can really kind of empathize with them in a, in a, in a deep way. And you only can find out about what's happening in an academia at the universities when you speak to the scholars who are working there. Uh, and you get your ideas and your inspiration also from having even casual conversations, I, I guess, over a cup of coffee. Yeah, uh, and sure. uh, I would not not want to do that anymore because that's one of the reasons I went to publishing is to is to work with scholars. Yeah. Now, mm-hmm. let me ask you, um, maybe you could just tell us a little bit about Amsterdam University Press and... Um, I don't know if we need an entire history. People can can look that up, but but maybe a little bit about kind of your focus nowadays and maybe mm-hmm. what differentiates you from some of the other uh, European university publishers, um, specifically within the context of, you know, if there are authors that are listening to this, kind of what subject areas you really are commissioning in or mm-hmm. interested in and, and, and how do you, how are you planning to kind of... Um, uh, you know, look forward to which subjects are going to be interesting to you, at least in the in the near future. Okay, well, Amsterdam University Press is uh, thirty years old, so it's not extremely old, and it was uh, originally a university press set up by the University of Amsterdam, uh, but has been actually an independent press for the last five years or so. So, in that respect, we are a little different from most university presses that are still embedded within a larger institution. Uh, we operate independently. That gives us a certain amount of freedom, but it also means there's some. We don't have a big institution supporting us. Um, uh, but as I said, it gives us the freedom to develop uh, in areas that uh, that we're interested in. Um, the press focuses on humanities and specifically on history, medieval, early modern, and into the 19th and 20th, 20th centuries. We have a list, a growing list of Asian studies and uh, a good strong list that does fit very well with Amsterdam University Press, which is uh, film, media and communication. Uh, the university here is a very strong department. Um, and so this is for, for us uh, a very good list. And yes, we develop specifically in these areas, but we are open to um, uh to other areas of research, of course, but within history, you can do quite a lot. We have uh, various series on heritage and memory studies. Uh, uh, We are now looking, of course, like many other uh, presses, just because the research is heading there at um, issues of decolonization, uh, slavery, and its uh, continued impact on everyday life for a lot of people now. We follow. We try to follow trends because we have to. This is where, what people are writing about, and that's what we are publishing about. So, it's uh, uh, those areas. But we are we're always interested in in talking about other subjects as well. If somebody has a really good idea, and thinks we should be heading there, um, yes, we're not dogmatic about what we do now. And and I'm curious about the geographic representation. Are most of the authors from Europe, or does it really vary? Um depending on the series and depending on the, yeah. Oh, I think we're truly international. Um, of course, we have strong links with Dutch scholars, um, but our, our authors are really uh, all over the over the globe. Um, 
We have a very international outlook. I think that also fits very well with the city of Amsterdam. Um, we have extremely good distribution worldwide, I would say, for a small press. Um, and our editors are, well, some of them are based in the Netherlands, um, but we also have editors for book series and journals that are elsewhere in the world. So we're not focused only on the, on the local. And, and for academic, we publish mostly in English, uh, even though we also have a small list for Dutch academic uh, works. And of course, our journals are, for a large part, um, Dutch language. Got it. And I want to, I want to, I want to um, uh, shift gears for a minute here and, or for a few minutes at least, um, and talk about one of the most important issues that I think all of the publishers are facing, but not only publishers, um, also authors. Um, and that is uh, the issue of open access and how to respond to some of the mandates um, that have been put forth in, in, the, in the last few years about open access. So before we get into kind of a detailed discussion of it, maybe um, you can share uh, a short definition of how you define open access, which, you know, I know that's an, an, a hard thing to do because it's, um, there's a lot to say and there's a lot that's incorporated, but just maybe for those who are not previously familiar, um, might be helpful starting point. Okay, well, you can speak for, for hours on the subject of open access, but uh, the short version is that open access means that scholarship is freely available to read to anybody who has an internet connection, because mostly it's online, of course. Um, so there's no paywall barriers uh, to access. Um, but another important aspect is that when it something is open access, it's more than just free access. It means that authors keep their copyright, but they also give some of the, those rights away by signing a um, Creative Commons license, which will allow the user or the reader to reuse the scholarship um, for their own work. Um, there's licenses that allow further use as in translations and adaptation. Um, so it depends on the, on what authors uh, allow, but that's basically it. It's really the free use and access to uh, scholarly uh, work. Got it. And and I want to I want to talk about um, or I want to ask you about uh, uh, what are known as transformative agreements um, or those agreements that are made in order to enable open access. So in order to do that, maybe you could give us a little bit of a backstory about how, you know, publishing traditionally, uh, you know, worked or works and, um, and kind of how these new agreements are coming, are coming into, are coming into play. Right. Um, I'm not sure how much I can actually say about transformative agreements, because as a small press, we have not really been, partner in these large agreements, uh, but they're basically working where universities and publishers work together and try to work out a way that uh, by supporting journal subscriptions, they are also allowing at the same time scholars from those universities to publish in open access. Um, as I said, for a small press, we're not really a partner in those conversations uh, between the big, the bigger publishers uh, and, and the uh, the universities, but we do our own thing. I would say, as uh, as Amsterdam University Press, most of our journals have some sort of open access. For instance, um, uh, we have we use delayed open access for any journals that have a subscription model. That means that all our 
uh, journals, uh, all the articles in journals turn open access uh, after 24 months of pu- after publication. But we do also work with um, the universities in the Netherlands uh, on a model called uh, subscribe to open, which is a little bit transformative, I would say, but it's different from, um, from many of the other transformative agreements in that um, libraries and, uh, and other subscribers keep their subscriptions knowing that the journal is available in open access. So it makes uh, small amounts of uh, subscription uh, payments make it possible for us to actually make the content completely open access for anybody else who does not have a subscription. It's a quite simple model, and it's uh, it's an international model that uh, is used also by a lot of other smaller presses and uh, societies, which I think works for the longer term because we have a commitment on both sides to uh, to support a journal. Um, but there's there's many ways of opening journals. Am I am I right to say that um, this whole model really depends on a lot of goodwill, right? Because in theory, if you are a library that wanted to save money, you could not subscribe and still, um, you know, get access to that content because it's open. Um, so is that is that am I understanding that correctly? Well, for for us, for the for Amsterdam University Press with our smaller Dutch language journals, yes, that is that is the model. I think that the model that the, the international um, presses use with subscribe to open is that they only open year by year, as long as there's enough support <laughs> um, from the universities to keep their subscription. If that falls below a certain level, they say, well, there's no support for this, so we'll we'll. Next year, the journal will not be open access, uh, but it is. Yeah, it's 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 a trust, and I think it's if if universities believe in the journals and scholars believe in the journals, this is a very, uh, yeah. How would I put it? I would like to say if libraries should put their money where their mouth is if they believe in open access and they want the good journals to have a future and their scholars to. Uh, writing these journals for these journals that are peer-reviewed that are curated um, where a lot of people put a lot of effort in it then uh, then I think it's good that they support it yeah of course of course yeah. and I think for them you know it's it's a matter of moving funds from one place to another it's not necessarily you know creating new funds which didn't exist before so you know it's a matter oh, of allocation what? of resources that are that's important Exactly, and it's it's nothing that they're not paying for already. Uh, and in our case, really, our subscription fees are really not very high. Um, I joke that for one subscription, um, you could have, uh, I think, our subscription is far less than the average APC. If you Got see it. what I mean, so yeah, 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 yeah. understand, yeah. right? So that's not right. It's not a very high number. Um, now I know. I, I think you know. I, I don't know if you can speak to this, but I know that different European countries have kind of approached uh, the open access differently, and like maybe that's a reflection of some of the you know cultural or you know philosophical uh, underpinnings of those countries. But can you tell us like why maybe you know maybe give us an example of 
how one country might be different than another in Europe. I, I also know that Europe is different than the U.S., right? So Europe is way ahead of, of, of the U.S. in terms of open access, although it does seem like the U.S. is slowly um, coming along. Um, so I'm curious if you can just shed a little bit of light on that. Um, yes, I think uh, speaking for the Netherlands is very far in the forerunner of open access, I would say, and it's coming from the uh, government, from the universities, from the libraries, uh, and, and, and individual scholars, of course, that, uh, there was a big pushback a few years ago to, um, uh, the larger publishers and their, uh, big deals. So in the Netherlands, it's always been, um, uh, a matter of course, I, I would almost say that uh, that that open access was going to be the future, and the government has really pushed it as well as through uh, providing open access money to help authors to publish in gold open access journals. Um, through yeah, so for us, it's it's an easy conversation to have with Dutch scholars. Let's, let's put it like that. But even going across the border to Belgium, it's a different story. Uh, open access is mostly for the sciences and, and for articles in journals, but far less trying to get funding for for books. Um, in Germany, I'm, it's, I think it's coming mostly from uh, research institutes and national research institutes rather than government. But it is very, very different in, in countries. Scandinavia is very pro-open access. Um, the UK is, of course. Uh, but looking further, as you said, in the US, it's, uh, it's, it's a very different matter. Although there's lots of initiatives coming through uh, university presses and universities. Right, right. Yeah, no, that's really, it's really fascinating to kind of see how each country um, addresses and, and, and looks at the idea of open access. And, and you mentioned about Belgium, about supporting, you know, the STEM sub STEM subject areas, maybe a little bit more than the humanities. Um, and I'm curious kind of how you see open access, um, as impacting, um, the, the humanities and social sciences, um, and in a way that, you know, is it, is it similar to other, um, initiatives whereby things happen first in, in STEM and then kind of trickle down, cascade down sometimes to, uh, humanities, social sciences, or do you think that humanities and social sciences will have to come up with their own models uh, for how to, or already coming up with their own models for how to deal with open access because the the typical journal STEM model maybe doesn't really work so well? Yes, and that's exactly the case. With a lot of things, we always look at STEM. So for especially technology, we're, uh, we're behind, but not too far behind. Uh, but with open access, we have the difficulty that uh, administrators say it has to be open access, everything, um, and try to make STEM and uh, humanities and social sciences uh, more or less the same. Uh, but it isn't. So, for instance, AUP, for the STEM, it was very normal to have uh, open access charges to be able to publish in uh, gold open access journals or in hybrid journals. And hybrid journals, of course, are subscription journals that allow for uh, open access articles. Um, for the science hard science, there was money available and quite a lot of money because the fees are much higher because they're more expensive to produce on the whole. Um, but 
I think AUP and before with Braille, we had uh, also APCs advertised and the option of publishing in hybrid journals. And the uptake has been, well, let's say non-existent. Um, I think AUP has had two in the past 10 years. Um, and uh, it, it, there's... There's either no money or people do not know how to find the money, <laughs> but it, it doesn't it doesn't work. Let's put it like gold, open access for uh, humanities, social sciences uh, doesn't really work. So we have to find other ways of making open access possible. And because we also, you know, we're publishers, we want our our journals to be widely read. We want everybody to take. Uh, uh, get their knowledge from from really excellent research so we are not against it but and have been trying to find other ways to do it and one of these is uh, subscribe to open uh, but diamond open access where the funding comes from institutions or research funders or um, uh, just a, a smaller funds that uh, that are willing to put some money towards open access um, is, is has really been the way to go for us but it's difficult because funding can stop or, you know, it's often for only for a few years. Are they, so I'm, all right, I'm, I'm curious about that. Is it, are they funding a particular manuscript or monograph or are they funding a series or is it just a certain time bound thing? How, what are the mechanics around that? For, oh, for journals we have, um, say you have a journal with a society and the society has members and they have uh, the members are automatic subscribers also to the journal uh, they often can say that they would like it also to be an open access and they can fund it because they have income through their members and the members support it um, there's uh, funding through just research funders who might want to fund the start of a new open access journal um, so they might say, we'll have this much money available for the next three years. And after that, you'll have to find your own. Um, we have a journal that's supported by just small amounts of money coming from different smaller funds. Uh, and every year, it's going to have to apply again. Um, and um, what else is there for... Oh, we have, to, of course, a subscribe to Open, which is a kind of uh, crowdfunding, as it were, through universities. So, but we we try to make it easier for for scholars to uh, fulfill their mandates for open access, uh, and make it easy, of course, for people who have not access through their own universities, um, and in the humanities, quite a lot of people are independent scholars. They do not have the backing of a large institution. So, I think it makes it easier for everybody if the money comes from somewhere else. Right. Yeah. It seems like the common theme here um, is that. There is not yet a one system that kind of can be scaled, right? There are different ways to patch work this, um, you know, the industry and and to get books or individual books or, you know, through um, in open access. But it's not yet something that's kind of can be repeated um, and, 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 and done at a, at a larger level. So that, maybe that's the next, ch- sounds like that's the next challenge. And I'm curious in that context to hear about, you know, it, it I would guess that this kind of forces um, publishers to work or at least to communicate um, at a higher level or at a a more deeper level, because no one publisher is going to be able, or at least not any of the smaller university publishers 
um, are likely going to be able to solve this problem on their own, right? It's going to cre- require a lot of, um, you know, collaboration and, and, and work together. So maybe you can shed some light on kind of how that has, has that been, you know, do you, do you find yourself engaging a lot with your colleagues from other university presses and, and how have you been able to open up a dialogue about that? Mm-hmm. Well, with other university presses, but also with other presses that we, we meet up uh, and organizations uh, talking about open access, talking with uh, libraries as well. I think for books, uh, we're quite lucky in the Netherlands that there's, uh, for scholars here, there's there's open access funding for a book and it's, it's a little bit easier because it's a one-time payment uh, rather than a... Uh, a commitment for for a longer period, um, but there are many different ways of that uh, presses are trying to facilitate open access. Um, there's uh, initiatives like Knowledge and Legends, where there's um, uh, university libraries get money together, as it were, to open up titles that they think are uh, are good for a larger audience and maybe the very very. Uh, niche monographs. Um, in the United S- States, there are initiatives funded by the bigger uh, foundations uh, that allow university presses to set up initiatives. Um, there are current initiatives where universities are working together with JSTOR to open up, um, open up books, also funded by libraries. So it's... It's, I guess, we're working more with libraries in that sense to get things done than uh, with other presses. Although, as I said, we for every press, uh, different things work better. Um, and I think at AUP, we've been quite successful to publish a lot of open access books. Um, we are always having this conversation with authors, even if they think they do not have any access to funding. We try to help them find it. And uh, uh, surprisingly, that often works also to the surprise of the authors themselves. Uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I think it's, it's, an, it's an interesting dynamic. There's uh, initiative, people, we're, we're trying things out. Some things work, some things don't. Um, but uh, yeah, we'll see where it goes. Never, never a dull moment in the open access. No, it sounds like it. You know, it's, it's a, it sounds like the, the the sands are still shifting underneath your feet. But um, that you know may also be an opportunity to innovate and to you know come up with new creative ideas, which can change publishing for the better. So you know that's that's uh, that's just that's just the world that we live in, and it's best to, to try and take advantage. Um, let me ask you. I wanted to ask you about something really interesting, which which you mentioned um, in our previous conversation which is about tracking meta metadata. Um, and I'm curious to hear from you kind of, um, first of all, if you could define what metadata is in the context of academic publishing and also why, why is it important? Um, why should authors care about their metadata? Well, metadata is everything that, uh, that defines your, your work on a, on a higher level. So the title is metadata. Uh, your name is metadata. Your institution is metadata. We, we collect all of this. Uh, keywords, abstracts, abstracts on uh, a journal article level, on a book level, of course, the blurb of the book, but also on chapter levels, even within monographs. Um, 
classifications that are used by the book trade, that's all metadata and that's all information that we collect and send out to distributors. It ends up in library catalogs and discovery services. This is how your work will be found by anybody who's looking uh, or not looking for that particular work. Um, uh, and, and it's incredibly important. It's one of the discussions we have with authors all the time uh, is uh, the most uh, the important thing almost is the title of your work. Um, and this is often not the title uh, you choose is the title we think would work best for the book. Um, you know, most monographs are based on uh, PhD thesis and I've, I for one have spent quite a few lunchtime thinking about what would be a brilliant title for my book, witty and or, or cryptic, etc. That doesn't work for metadata. Metadata needs to be clear and a little boring. It has to say uh, what your book is about, what your article is about. It needs to be found in Google searches. Um, and it's an interesting conversation and, uh, and it changes all the time as well on what's needed. Uh, for now, before build... Uh, for example, sorry. For example, we we would like authors to start using orchids, so their author identifier that will allow them to claim works as their own, um, and uh, it's very commonly used already in the STM. Uh, but for a lot of uh, humanities scholars, it, it's a new thing, uh, and I think as as a as a publisher, we also have a job to educate. Uh, academics about uh, about how they get how they get read and how they get found and how their work will have the most impact. And why is the orchid so important? Is it because it's more easily attributed? You're attributing the author to the particular work, and therefore the it gets work, more exposure. Yes. Well, and it, it, uh, people are start. If, if somebody finds your uh, one article by you and your orchid's there, you, they can people can just click on your orchid and find what else you've written, for instance. But if, also, if you have uh, an, uh, not a very unique name, and there's lots of people with your name working on all kinds of areas, um, how do they know that you are the author of that particular article or that particular book? Um so for 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 that sort of thing for tracking for impact, if you want to check your own to to measure your own impact, that sort of thing might be important. Like everything has a number these days. So yeah, um, interesting, interesting. Yes. Yeah, no, that's definitely definitely. Um, if your name is John Smith, then you definitely are going to want to use your orchid number because it's going to be hard <laughs> to find you online. I actually I found that um I find that that sometimes with also with some of our Asian scholars, um, you know, it's hard to actually, if someone, you know, reaches out to us, usually I like to look, do a little bit of background in, you know, looking before I speak to them. And I find that, you know, sometimes the names can be quite common and it's hard to really identify. So I can, I can understand how the orchid would be really helpful. Um, I want to take a step back, zoom out a little bit. Um, and, and I know that your, your time is, is limited and I thank you for, for taking the time. So I want to, I want to, I want to, work towards conclusion and ask you just in general about, um, you know, the, the, the kind of focus, the shifting focus on HSS, um, uh, you know, in universities and whether you see, you know, I, I definitely hear a lot of doomsdayers talking about, you know, how humanities, is, um, you know, uh, continues to, to, to get funding cuts and is problematic. On the other hand, 
I, I continue to see a proliferation of really great work in the humanities. So, um, and I'm curious to hear from you, kind of from your perspective, um, how you see kind of the past couple of years um, in terms of humanities support for humanities and social sciences research um, and publication, and also how you kind of see the next few years and whether you're 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 worried or whether you're you're optimistic about the future. Well, I was a little bit worried um, because you always hear about budget cuts at universities for especially hitting the humanities and social sciences, fewer students, everybody needs to go into the sciences and, and, and economics, etc. Um, and of course, budget cuts affecting libraries, especially in the humanities, because bigger budgets are needed uh, for STM publications. So... But on the other hand, I think what we see coming out, lots is being published. There's a lot of research, excellent research coming out of the universities. Um, And sadly, also, I think it's becoming clearer and clearer how important history, for instance, and social sciences are when you look at state of the world today. Um, So... And I think humanities is working towards becoming more relevant. So that I think is a very positive uh, development. They're looking at, at what's happening in society today and and uh, directing their research towards it. The environmental humanities is becoming a rather big thing. As I mentioned before, a history looking at our, for instance, in the Netherlands, looking at our own history that we might feel a little bit uh, awkward about, or a little bit, a lot awkward about the whole slavery and becoming uh, slavery issues, decolonization. Um, I think humanity is really making big steps there now. Um, And I had, uh, so I'm positive on that score. And I think for the Netherlands, I had the news that the universities have, been given more uh, funding to hire new people. So I don't know if that's uh, that's happening elsewhere, but it seems that here in the Netherlands that at least some of the universities are getting bigger budgets and are hiring people again. Um, I, I, that's, I always uh, see it, I always think about it as a pendulum, right? It's like the his, if you especially mm-hmm. if you're a history a historian, right? you realize that when you go too far in the direction of, you know, of, 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 you know, innovation, not, not, I'm, I'm all for innovation. Don't get me wrong, but when you kind of, you know, um, and, 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 but stop thinking about the, the why, um, and just think too much about the what. So naturally there will be a pushback, um, to think about the why. And I think that that's makes, uh, you know, humanities all that more important in, in, you know, in this current sort of, technological, I don't even know how to call it, you know, quantum leap that we seem to be making on an almost annual basis. Um, having those folks who are able to think about the ramifications and implications of some of these technologies that we're building and how we're going to make them in a way which is fair and reasonable and and, and equitable and, and non-discriminatory. These are really big questions and hard questions that I think require a perspective of history and a perspective of of, impo- of, of really deep philosophical questions that that um, that, that need to be answered. So I'm a, I'm a, I'm an internal optimist, maybe too much so, but I I, I sort of feel like the pendulum is you know is, is swinging, um, you know at least in terms of a recognition of the importance of of the you know of humanities. Um, so 
anyway, but that's that. Well, that we'll, we'll we'll wait, right? We'll wait and see and see how it turns out. We'll wait and um, see. Exactly. Um, yes. Irene, is there anywhere? I don't know if you're active at all um, on social media, but is there anywhere if someone does want to, you know, follow you or or get, or get in touch? Is there anywhere uh, that you would re- guide them to? <laughs> I'm very bad at social media. That's I'm on right. LinkedIn. No <laughs> that's about it, I'm afraid. But uh, on LinkedIn, uh, that's where, that's where uh, that's I spend. You know, I don't spend much time on anything besides for LinkedIn either. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, is it just Irene Van Rossum on LinkedIn? It is, and of course, uh, contact details are also on aup.nl uh, on our on our website. Fantastic! Fantastic! So I would love and, people to get in touch with uh, with me and talk about their projects. Yeah, of course. If any of our audience is listening and has a project in any of the areas that AUP is uh, specializes in, then I highly recommend um, reaching out. Um, if anyone wants to uh, to follow me, you can follow me on LinkedIn, uh, Avi Stamen. Uh, also on Twitter at ALE tra- underscore ALE translation um, and uh, happy to, uh, to, to, to engage in that way. So Irene, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me today. It was a real pleasure. I, I, I learned a lot um, in our conversation um, and um, you know, I, I think that it's opened up a lot of kind of, uh, I, you know, a lot of things to think about in terms of how do we make OA sustainable? Uh, that's kind of one thing that's, 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 you know, sticking out to me from our conversation. How do we make that sustainable in the humanities? And I think that's a big important question to answer um, over the next, you know, over the next few years. So thank you for sharing from your insight and knowledge and expertise. And um, I look forward to engaging again with and, and continuing these conversations um, in the, over the, over the next couple of months. Well, thank you very much for inviting me and giving me the opportunity to speak with you. It's my absolute pleasure. Have a great day. Okay, you too. Bye-bye.